I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to John 9. John chapter 9. We're going to get almost all the way through the chapter. We're going verses 13 down to 38. Before we read it and take a look at it, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, in this narrative, we see some quite amazing things. We see some unbelief that is difficult to comprehend. We see fear of men working itself out. And we see this growing faith that emerges from out of nowhere and that is standing firm in our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we take a look at these three things, we ask that you would help us to examine our own lives, fill us with your spirit, give us strength to carry out what it is that you would have us carry out based on what we learned from this passage. And we pray all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, John uh, chapter 9 and verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us and they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him 
and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone listening uh, this morning, uh, this we get uh, in this chapter is a little snapshot of life in the church, the ecclesia, the synagogue uh, of the Old Testament church uh, at the time of Christ. And it is, as I trust you can see, a sort of sick snapshot. Uh, it's not a pretty depiction of what's taking place inside the church. And yet right in the midst of this is an actual, just a miracle, something amazing. And a guy who is converted to Christ and now grounded in Christ and standing firm in Christ, no matter what's coming against him. And it's a real encouragement to see uh, this little shoot emerging from all this deadness. And I want us to notice just three things. It's really just looking at three different kinds of people. The first are the Jewish leaders and the ways that they're doing their investigation, uh, the ways that they're intimidating uh, people into drawing their own conclusions or drawing the Pharisees' conclusions. The second group of people I want to look at are the parents and what they did out of fear. And then the third person is uh, the man born blind who was healed of his blindness and particularly look at his faith. So I want to start with the Pharisees and uh, just a, a little bit of information from this appears to be uh, a local synagogue issue. Now him being thrown out would probably affect his life at uh, regional synagogues too around the area. So if he'd go to a different one, they would say, look, we have to honor you being cast out. Uh, but this is like a, a local church issue. Uh, the neighbors uh, had asked this man, look, what took place in your life? He said, look, he, he spat on the ground. Uh, he did this stuff. What, he wiped saliva in my eyes. I went and washed and I was healed. And so the neighbors don't really know what to do with this. Now it's possible the neighbors were against the man and against Christ. And they wanted to bring him to the Pharisees so that they could build a case against this man and against Christ. It's also possible that the neighbors are just really confused and want some explanation because nobody's seen a man born blind healed of his blindness. It's possible that they could even be for this man and for the Lord Jesus Christ and want to bring him to the Pharisees to try and throw him in their face, saying, you've denied Jesus at this point, but you got to get a load of this. This guy was born blind and he sees that's never been done before. So we don't know the motives of the neighbors, but we do know they brought the man to uh, the Pharisees and uh, the question that the Pharisees asked him is how he received his sight. He gave a simple answer. This is the first round of interrogation, as it were. He put mud on my eyes, verse 15, and I washed and I see. Now, the Pharisees were immediately divided over this. Group A says, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Here's their reasoning. Everyone from God will keep the Sabbath. Jesus does not keep the Sabbath. Therefore, Jesus is not from God. That's their reasoning. And the reason they say he wasn't keeping the Sabbath is because you weren't allowed to heal on the Sabbath. It's interesting, almost torturous, you could argue hateful, that in their Sabbath laws, they had laws all the way down to you could help somebody survive to the next day. <laughs> so just get them through the Sabbath day, but you can't give them full medical care and try and bring them to full healing on the Sabbath day because that's considered work. So you can do what you can to help them limp through. So when Jesus does a full healing, in their minds, he's breaking the Sabbath. No one from God would break the Sabbath. Therefore, Jesus cannot be from God. Then there's group B. How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Here's their thought process. Sinners cannot do miraculous signs. Jesus does miraculous signs. Therefore, Jesus 
cannot be a sinner. In other words, there might be something special about this guy. This group appears to have arrived at a much better conclusion than the first group, but their argument is still not very good because we know from Matthew 7, verse 22, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name, that you can actually be a non-Christian and still do many mighty works uh, in the name of the Lord. So they ask uh, him about Jesus in verse 17. He, he told them what, uh, what Jesus had done. They're immediately divided. They have a schism in the Pharisees group. Pharisees on one side, some Pharisees on the other. And then they said, what do you say about him? Now they want to know about Jesus, since he opened your eyes. And this man said he's a prophet. So that is the end of the first round of interrogation. The second round comes soon after, down in verse 24, after the episode with the parents. We're going to drop right down to that in verse 24. So first round's over. This man did not say that Jesus is the Christ, so he's still in the synagogue. He's still in but there's a lot of confusion among the Pharisees. They don't know what to do with him yet. So they go talk to the parents and then they come back to the man and pick up in verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And the formerly blind man said, he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know that though I was blind, now I see. Now the language that they use here is very similar to the language used in Joshua in that, that Joshua used uh, toward Achan in Joshua 7, 19, where Joshua said this, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. It's almost like being put under oath. They're saying, give glory to God. Speak truthfully. Speak truth to God. In other words, they think that, that he may be very well lying. And so they're trying to elicit from him a different confession. They're upping the ante, as it were. And then they say, we know that this man is a sinner. Now talk about prejudicing his answer. That's, this is where the intimidation comes in. This is where the use of their power comes in. We know that this man is a sinner, but they have no proof at all that Jesus is a sinner. And they don't present any proof that Jesus is a sinner at all. Now they're just trying to pressure him to get him to give an answer that will be acceptable to them. They're trying to use fear tactics as it were. This is called the abuse of authority intimidation, uh, the twisting around of the truth. And I want us to just stop and consider for a moment in this second uh, interrogation or after it, just a few uh, things. This is so characteristic of unbelief, beloved. Unbelief has already made up its mind about who the Lord Jesus Christ is, and then it goes out searching for answers that will bear that up and match it up. The Pharisees are not interested in finding out the truth. God could come in the flesh and stand in front of them and teach them and do miracles in front of them. After miracle, after miracle, after miracle, they behold all of them. And now they've got thrust right in front of their face, a man who was born blind, whose neighbors are saying, get a load of, look at this. Whose parents are saying, yep, yeah, uh, we know to think he was born blind. That's our son and he was born blind. And now this man sees. So they have standing in front of them irrefutable evidence, eyewitness evidence. Probably some of them walked by this same man and maybe even gave him stuff as he begged. And yet they still refuse to believe. They won't do it. What are they looking for? They're looking for every excuse not to believe. There are a lot of things that can be learned from this in this exchange, but just a couple things that I think we can pull from it. One, one is evangelistically. 
One big problem with the human heart that we all have by nature until the Lord saves us is that the human heart is by nature set against God and against Christ by default. The human heart is not looking for reasons to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's looking for reasons to not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we talk about how much sense it makes to believe in Jesus and we present information about his miracles and his resurrection, those things are all true. But what you'll soon discover is that unbelievers are not able to conduct an unbiased examination of the evidence. Why can't they do it? Because they don't want it to be true that Jesus Christ is Lord. These Pharisees don't want this to be true because it means that they're kicked off their religious pedestal. If Jesus is Lord, it means they have to bow the knee to him. They have to eat crow. They have to go to him and say, we've got you all wrong so far. We're sorry. Forgive us. And in their pride, they can't do that. But they're a portrait of the pride of every human heart, beloved. Proud to say, we don't need a savior. We're fine on our own. We don't need someone to come and tell us that we're sinners and we have to repent of our sin and turn around and that we're that broken. We need someone to die on the cross for us. But that's the pride of every human heart displayed in the Pharisees here. And it's the pride that all of us had in our hearts before the Lord waltzed in and turned us around, gave us a new heart, said, you're mine, time to cut this stuff out. You belong to me now, you're my child. And then we repent and we turn around and we cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. So evangelistically, don't be surprised when we reach out to people and we're trying to love them like God has loved us. And we're trying to do for them what somebody else did for us in giving them Christ and praying that they come to believe. Don't be surprised when they come up with the most crazy, irrational, unbelievable ways to not believe in him and all the greatest excuses you've ever heard, which have no basis at all to not believe in him because that, that will be the case. That's how hard our hearts are by nature. There's something else I want us to look at as far as uh, church life goes. It's really easy for us as believers inside the church to make up our minds about how things ought to go. This is just a general wisdom thing using the Pharisees as how not to do this. It's really easy to be prejudiced against people like the Pharisees are against Jesus and this man, making up our minds before we've ever heard the facts, deciding who's in and who's out. And we probably all do this by nature, right? If someone comes in here uh, into our assembly dressed in sweatpants and a tank top, immediately, probably most of us will have already figured a lot of things out about them that aren't true, but our minds and hearts went there. And somebody comes dressed in an Armani suit, decked out with a, or a, a, a great dress, decked out in tons of jewelry and incredible things. Our minds probably already concluded tons of things about them, didn't we? But we haven't even talked to them once. We don't even know who they are, who they are, where they're from. We don't know their faith story. We don't know if they believe or if they don't believe. We don't know anything about them, nothing. <laughs> We just know one skin deep thing, what they put on this morning. That's it. Love this can happen in a thousand different ways. That's what the Pharisees are doing. Here was their conclusion before they ever did any examination. This man, Jesus, is a fraud. He's a blasphemer. There is no way that we're going to bow down and worship him. I don't care if he has cows jump over the moon. I don't care if he feeds the 5,000. I don't care if he makes a man born blind see. I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up. I don't care if he does all of that. He is not the Christ. And that's what they had decided. And it's very easy for us to fall into the same trap as believers too, thinking that we're going to read people. We're going to put labels on them. We're going to conclude things about them when we don't even know them and we haven't given them 
a fair trial. Now there's two more uh, reactions I want to look at here. Uh, verses 27 to 29, he answered them, I've already told you, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him now. Now the that's going even farther. They're reviling him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are of disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The word reviled is to say harsh things, to abuse insultingly, or to rail against. Another way of putting it is they're just starting to come unglued here. They're having at this man born blind. Almost as if he who yells the loudest wins the argument. That's what they are resorting to. It's often the case that the truth, uh, he who resorts to reviling and insults has the weaker case. That's oftentimes what bears itself out. Is that when people have a weak case, they don't have anything to stand on and, and the Pharisees don't, then they start resorting to personal insults and attacks. And I want to mention this just briefly. Beware of using any authority that we may have in this way. Any authority, especially in the church, let's start there. Authority as deacons, elders, pastors. Authority you may have as Sunday school teachers. Whatever authority God has given us in the church is not to be used this way. Where people have questions, people have things they're trying to work through, and we may actually be standing on shaky ground and be in the wrong, and they show us how we're in the wrong, and we, and we just lash out rather than say, yep, looks like I have to change my mind. Of an authority in the church is supposed to be humble. These Pharisees should have been humble men who when shown by the word of God and shown before their very eyes the Messiah that all the Jews have been waiting for, they should have bowed the knee, fallen down, and said, we're glad he's here. Let's worship him. Uh, as we keep walking through this in verse 29, looking at unbelief and their intimidation, they said, we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Now, this is a sad reality for these Jews that they pit Jesus against Moses, that they cannot see that Jesus Christ has come to fulfill the law of Moses, not get rid of the law of Moses, not abolish it. They can't see what John said at the beginning of his gospel in John 1.17. The law was given through Moses. That's true. So Moses was a faithful prophet, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So here they are, disciples of Moses, but not of God. Disciples of Moses, but not disciples of Christ. And so they're lost. And A.W. Pink, in commenting on this passage, had this to say. I think it's helpful in walking us down what this might have to do with us today. This too has its present day application, being disciples of Moses. Multitudes are seeking their shelter behind high pretensions and honored names. Many there are who term themselves Calvinists that Calvin would be ashamed to own. Many call themselves Lutherans who neither manifest the faith nor emulate the works of the great reformer. Many go under the name of Baptists to whom our Lord's forerunner, John the Baptist, were he here in the flesh would say, flee from the wrath to come. And countless numbers claim to be Protestants who scarcely know what the term itself signifies. It's one thing to say we are disciples. It's quite another to make demonstration of it. And then one more exchange here, verses 30 to 34, the man answered why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, 
You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us. And they cast him out. Now them saying you were born in utter sin is another way of saying the reason you were blind is because of your sin. That's why you were born blind. Remember the disciples asking who sinned, him or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said neither. Just that the glory of God will be manifest through him. Pharisees are saying, no, he was born in utter sin. Your blindness was your problem. And they're basically discrediting him again, using name-calling stuff, and they threw him out. And regarding uh, excommunication from the synagogue, uh, later on in Jewish tradition, there were uh, levels of excommunication for sure, and likely they were operative at some point uh, or in, uh, in some way in Jesus' time. And there were three levels that one uh, Charles Ellicott uh, 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 basically denominated here. He's an 18th century English commentator. And he said the first level of excommunication is this. It's the lightest level. It was for 30 days, and you had to stay four cubits, which is six feet. Who, who know that they were doing social distancing before we do today? But you had to stay four, six feet apart from everyone, including your wife and children. But you could still attend synagogue meetings. That was the first level of excommunication. The second level excluded you from all religious meetings and all interaction with Jewish people, and it was pronounced with curses. And the severest level of excommunication was perpetual banishment from all meetings and being excluded from all fellowship with God's people. Now, we're not told what level this man experienced. We're not told what level he had to undergo. But we know there's a cost to this, to being removed from the synagogue. There is a, a, a rather harsh cost. Life would become very hard for him in ways we'll look at in just a moment. I want to pause and just look at just a few things before we move on to the fear of man and the parents. There are people today who say that if only they could witness a miracle of God, if Christ could just appear and heal a blind man or do something incredible, raise somebody from the dead, they would believe. And we've noticed over and over and over again in the Gospel of John so far in Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees that you can feed 20,000 people with a little bit of fish and bread. We'll notice in just a few chapters that you can raise somebody from the dead we're seeing here that you can heal a man born blind. We're seeing Jesus do all these miracles, turning water into wine at Cana of Galilee, really good wine. We've seen the greatest miracle that John describes in chapter one, where the Son of God comes down and actually walks among his own people. And we'll see him later die on the cross and be resurrected. And after seeing all these miracles, they refuse to believe. I remember watching uh, a debate, and one of the guys said, if God would just come right, come down right now and strike the podium with lightning, I would believe. But then you go back some 2,000 years and you see all these people looking at all the evidence much better than a lightning strike, and they refuse to believe. That's what it is. That's what unbelief looks like, beloved. Every excuse not to believe just won't do it. That's our, how hard our hearts are by nature. Isn't this what happened with Adam and even the fall into sin is horrible. It's absolutely horrible, eternally horrible for so many people. And it's a miracle that any of us would believe. How is it that we who have the same hard hearts as these Pharisees, how is it that we actually believe? How is it that this one guy in this story who was formerly blind, how is it that he believes? It's nothing but God's sheer grace, his amazing grace that any of us believe in him. Then let's look at the second thing, the second heading that I want to uh, notice is fear of man 
looking at the parents, verses 18 through 23. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until, the, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So they, they feared the Jews. And fear of man is what holds all false religions together. Fear of being rejected, fear of being isolated, fear of being publicly shamed, fear of not measuring up to the expectations of others. That's what holds false religions together. And in the case of this man's parents, they feared the Jews more than they feared God. Now, why did they and others fear the Jews and being kicked out of the synagogue? Well, they, they feared the Jews because they were afraid of being excommunicated. Why was excommunication that big of a deal? Because if you were excommunicated, you had to restructure your entire life. So if you were removed from the synagogue, that means people would no longer do business with you or hang out with you. So there was a social cost. Your own spouse can't even be around you anymore. You may have the most incredible marriage. You're excommunicated. All of a sudden, your marriage looks drastically different. Your own kids, contact with them, cut off. Family members, friends, people around town, all the Jews parts who are part of synagogues, had just left you entirely alone. They didn't talk with you. They didn't interact with you. There was a social cost, so you're lonely. There was also a financial cost. They weren't allowed to conduct business with you anymore. So now you go to the marketplace and try and sell your goods. Nobody buys it. Or you go to the marketplace and try and buy food. They won't sell it to you. So depending on what you did for a living, or if you were a, a, a worker for somebody, a day laborer, you didn't, you didn't get a job anymore. So in order to make it, you, you either turned back into a beggar, which is what this man was looking at, or you relocate to Gentile territory where the Jews, where there's very few Jews around and people don't care. You're excommunicated from the synagogues. Oh, well, you have, you, you have money, I'll give you food. You have food, I want to buy it from you. And you could trade. So your entire life was reoriented. That's why people were afraid of being excommunicated because if you had any roots there, if you had any sense of community there, any good job there. You didn't want to jeopardize that by being kicked out of the synagogue. And anybody who confessed that this Jesus guy is the Christ, they were out. So this fear of man is a real thing. And Jesus even talks about it, Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And I find it interesting reading that passage that Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. He said there are people who can kill the body. Fear of man is real. Beloved, there are people in positions of authority, the Pharisees in this episode, uh, civic rumors, people in authority in the workplace and neighborhood and churches who can really kill the body and do us severe harm. That's a real possibility. Fear of man wouldn't exist if people couldn't do anything horrible to us. The reason why people are afraid of men by nature and these, the, the parents of the man were blind were afraid of the Jews is because people can really do things to harm us physically. And the great temptation for believers in Christ is to fear and reverence and honor 
men and women over the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this man born blind didn't, but his parents did. They feared men more than they feared God. Instead of fearing men, though, Jesus says, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. God has the authority and the power to destroy and bring to ruin both our bodies in this life and our souls in the next life. And so Jesus says, look, indeed, honor people, show them the respect that is due them and the obedience that is due them when it's due. But honor God ultimately, fear him. People on this earth, sure, they can make your life miserable. They can bring you lots of physical pain. But, but their time to do that will end when either they die or you die. But I want you to fear the one who can destroy your body and your soul in hell forever. Fear him most of all, reverence and honor the Lord. And that's what these parents missed out on. I just want to mention briefly, I don't want to spend much time with this. Do not fear, beloved pastors, elders, deacons, seminary professors, or anyone else who has authority in the church. Do not live in fear of them. Live in fear of the Lord. He's Lord of our lives. He's Lord of our consciences. No mere man is. And so all of us as believers are called to live in fear of him, honoring and respecting him. Because what's at stake with him is far more than what's at stake with mere human beings. And then finally, we're looking at a growing faith. So I want to read for you a few of the things that the man formerly blind who now sees says and watch the progression starting at verse 11. The man called Jesus, so a little bit distant, doesn't say he's Jesus, he's my savior. He says, the man called Jesus, made mud, anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. Verse 15, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Verse 17, he's a prophet, okay? We're getting some traction here. He's starting to accelerate a little bit. Remember the people said he's a prophet after he fed the 20,000. So he's starting to uh, gain a little ground here. If you skip down to verse 25, he says, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind and now I see. So they're starting to put pressure on him. He's standing firm. He's just sticking with the truth. You guys want to label the sinner? That's fine. Go for it. I, I used to be blind. I see now. I, I got that much. So he's getting his testimony straight. Verse 27, why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now he latches on to an incredible truth. If you look at the entire Old Testament, you look at the history of the world, no one who's been born blind sees. It's just not taking place. This is the first. And he said, this is just an amazing thing. He can come down here and do the first kind of its miracle ever, making a man born blind see. And all you can tell me is you don't know where he comes from. I mean, you can hear just the, almost the frustration that this formerly blind guy has with these church leaders. Let me paraphrase it. You've got to be kidding me. This is, this, is amazing. this is just astounding. I can't wrap my mind around this. You guys are debating where he's coming from. Look what he's doing. No one who's not from God could do these things. Even Nicodemus understood. Look, we, we know that you're from God. We're listening to you teach. We're watching what you do. We know that you're from God. And so this man is just standing firm now in his faith. This is a brand new faith, by the way. This is a faith that 
has started in seed form, very confused. Jesus is going to come in just a moment and clarify things. He's going to be like, yep, I believe, but he's already in. He's already no longer afraid of the Jews. He's going to honor Christ, even if they kick him out, which they do. And Charles Henry McIntosh, he's a 19th century Irish pastor, wrote this regarding uh, what this man said. It would have been manifestly, it would have served the man, the poor man's worldly interest better to cushion the truth as to what had been done for him. He might have enjoyed the benefit of the work of Christ and yet avoided the rough path of testimony for his name in the face of the world's hostility. He might have enjoyed his eyesight and at the same time retained his place within the pale of respectable religious profession. He might have reaped the fruit of Christ's work and yet escaped the reproach of confessing his name. How often is this the case? Alas, how often? Thousands are very well pleased to hear what Jesus has done but they do not want to be identified with his outcast and rejected name. In other words, to use a, a modern and very popular phrase, they want to make the best of both worlds, a sentiment from which every true-hearted lover of Christ must shrink with abhorrence. It is obvious that the subject of our narrative knew nothing of any such maxim. He had had his eyes opened, and he could not but speak of it and tell who did it and how it was done. He was an honest man. He had no mixed motives." Something about this, beloved, that I hope all of us capture, just a babe in the faith. We have to be children. In order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of heaven, we must become like children. And we never stop praying what? Our Father, which means we never stop being children. And we grow in the faith, we mature. But before God, compared to him, he's always our Father. We are always children. And we just can't help but speak. You ask a child, what's your, what are your parents like? They don't have mixed motives thinking, oh, I need to conceal this or conceal that. Children just tell it. Well, just here, here's what my parents are like. Beloved, when Christ comes in and saves a person, our testimony is just, what, what, is, what is your God like? What is the Savior? What has he done for you? Oh, well, he gave me new life. I used to be blind, you see. I used to live a life of sin. Here's what it, here's what it looked like. Here's the things that I could never put to death. Here's the life I reveled in and loved. I was never looking for God. And then all of a sudden he showed up. For some of us, it was a process, maybe a few years where all of a sudden I started doubting everything. I had tons of questions and it was an intellectual battle. It was a heart battle, a battle of my will, what I want to do for some people. It's like instant. Paul rode to Damascus. Life turned upside down and nothing is the same again. But in both cases, God shows up and our life afterward is simply like a babe's testimony. I don't care what you want to call Jesus. You can call him whatever blasphemous names you want to. Call him, call him a sinner, go for it. But I know this, that before I was in darkness, before I was blind, now I can see, and I love what I see, and I'm gonna tell you what I see, and I hope you come to see it too. A very simple testimony, beloved, from a very new believer. And then comes one of the most endearing, heartwarming episodes in the ministry of Jesus Christ. This man's now on his own. He's out of the synagogue, it's done. Who knows for how long, but there's no, no clarification on how long he's out or that he ever comes back in. So likely he's just finished. Socially, he's out. His relationship with his parents is now gonna change drastically. Financially, he's probably again reduced to a beggar unless he relocates. And then in verse 35, we read this, Jesus heard that, he had, that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, so Jesus goes and finds this guy. He healed the man, that would have been enough. 
He heals that he hears that he's been kicked out. So Jesus immediately goes to find this man and said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. So here we see a growing faith, uh, someone more and more becoming grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ. This man starts off by saying, the man called Jesus and ends up calling him Lord and worshiping him. What a portrait of how faith grows as well, beloved. You'll notice this in your own journey. At first, we may not know much at all. At first, we may be a little shaky. At first, the cost following Jesus seems like a lot, but eventually more and more, the Lord puts our feet on the ground. And as pressure comes, we become more and more firmly entrenched saying, you'll have to kill me. You can kick me out of the synagogue. You can defriend me in the workplace. You can do whatever you want to me anywhere in, in the world. I don't care, but I am not walking away from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how our faith grows. That's what it looks like when it grows. For believers, it's something to consider. There is before us in nearly every circumstance a legitimate choice. We can either honor and serve and worship the one who lived and suffered and died in our place, or we can give ultimate fear and honor to people in this world. If we give ultimate honor and reverence to men in this world, our lives here on earth will be easier, likely. Things will go better. We might have more friends. Maybe we'll be in a better spot financially. That's all very possible. But our witness and our testimony will be horrendous or it'll just be non-existent. The other thing we can pick is we can give ultimate honor and reverence to Christ alone. But know this, that our lives on this earth will be different. We will likely have less social and financial benefits, but our witness will be faithful and true. And so there's the choice. Are we gonna go out as this man, full of faith, telling people what God has done for our souls, bearing the cost, being kicked out of social clubs and circles, being defriended by certain people, maybe being cast out, very possible. Bearing that cost and doing it joyfully, or are we going to go out and be so afraid of men that everybody just praises us, that everybody thinks highly of us because we just never tell them about Christ. We never ever cross that bridge with them. And finally, for any who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be a cost to follow Christ in this life. Absolutely. A lot of people say, I'd follow Christ if there wasn't a cost. Tell me there's no cost. I'm not going to lie to you. There's a cost. You want to follow Christ, it'll cost you. It will cost you something. It will probably cost you friends, family. It may cost you financially. It will cost you in some ways when you pick up that cross, deny yourself and follow him. But the reward will be eternal life through Christ. That's the reward. You're exchanging 70 years of cost for millions and millions of years. And then you'll only have just warmed up plus infinity. You're exchanging that short time of, of cost for an infinity of glory. But I want you to consider this, the cost of not following Christ will be even greater. This life will probably go smoother for you if you don't follow Christ. It probably will go a lot better. If you follow Christ versus not following Christ, on your deathbed, the one who didn't follow Christ will probably say, yeah, life was, life was pretty decent. It was way better if I compare myself. But just know that on the other side, it will never have been worth it. That you'll face God and his infinite wrath against your sin because you don't have a savior who paid for your sin. So I urge you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What are you going to pick? It's your life. It's your eternal 
destination for your soul. What are you going to pick? What am I going to pick? The choice is yours. Let's pray.